Welcome to the Indigenous Vision Podcast. You are officially listening to episode 37. 37. What a great number. What did we talk about? (laughs) I know it's been like a few weeks. My name is Melissa, by the way. I am back in Las Vegas after a journey to my homeland up in Treaty 1, Canada. I'm so glad you made it home. Hello, everybody. My name is Suta Calling Last, Blackfoot Queen in Montana. (laughs) Blackfoot Barbie. Blackfoot Barbie. Yes. I don't know if we, we got to talk um, since then, but Melissa gave me these beautiful sequin pillows and a vinyl decal of me in cartoon form that says Blackfoot Barbie. And now I'm trying to figure out like, okay, how do I put this somewhere like on my vehicle or in my trailer or at my house in a frame and be like, yeah, that's me. And I'm not somehow. (laughs) (laughs) You're the ultimate Blackfoot Barbie. This happened on your birthday weekend. Like the inception of this just creeped into my brain because you had just gotten this brand new truck and you were, you know, just exploring your like territory and all your glory. And you mentioned something about like mountain Barbie or something, maybe like that. And then I was like Blackfoot Barbie. And then I hired this really cool designer out of Venezuela who was doing these amazing like Amazonian tribal women warrior art. And I was like, oh my gosh, she can totally design Blackfoot Barbie. And then I creeped on your Facebook and took the mountain picture with you with the blue heels, put it together with the Barbie logo and like, boom, Suta calling last is the Blackfoot Barbie. So beautiful. I cried. I I had never, (laughs) I've never had a friend who I felt like, listen to me like that. And I just, I love you for that. It's just so amazing too. It's like, I cried at the pillows, like those came in and and at first I didn't even it took me a few seconds to realize that the Barbie looked like me and I was like oh my god that's even your tattoo (laughs) yeah I sent her the picture and she really got the face as like simplified as it is it's like your face and your tattoo and your signature like high heels and your tone (laughs) of skin and your your simplistic hair, but it's like super glam at the same time. It was just a perfect, I think, caricature of the Blackfoot Barbie in you. She did an amazing job and you're such an amazing friend for doing that. I just love you. Well, it was my thank you for like hooking me up to go across the border to see my family. Because like I said, I was feeling low down these past few months and I've totally been revived as far as my spirit goes. And it was really good to go back home and see all my friends and like, It was just like this crazy love fest of just how much I'm loved and how much everybody missed me and the the void I left on this city, even my old boss, I always stop by my old old job at the radio station, NCIFM. And he was just like, man, if you ever come back, let me know. And I was looking around and I was like, this place needs a hero. (laughs) This place (laughs) needs a hero because it's just like barely hanging on because there was it just looked pitiful because there's like no staff. People are working from home for the past year. So it's usually like this bustling radio station with like talking in this room and this studio's got like music playing. And then there's the actual on-air booth. And it was just like dead. And I was like, what is going on here? This wow. place needs a hero. Wow. A shiro. <laughs> a shiro. So I've officially made a plan to kind of go back within two to three years is what I'm thinking. I'm 
kind of processing that. I really love my lifestyle out here, but like, I can always come back. I have a long life ahead of me. My folks don't. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much the, the juice of like my, my new planning. Mm, you're going to brave. So I'm going to be yeah, slowly downscaling my life again. This is like the 50th time where I've accumulated all this stuff. And I'm like, now I'm going to downsize it. Mm-hmm. And it's the records and the kitties that are like the hardest thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm gonna don't get, get rid, rid of a, don't get rid of a single record. I did that. Before. Really? I got rid of three milk crates full of records to my <sighs> one neighbor. I don't even remember his name, but he cried when I gave him the, yeah. cause it's, it's a lot of collecting like partially my money. Yeah. Partially my ex's collection. <laughs> <laughs> he, che- he cheated, uh, but payment. Um, and then partially my collection. And it was a really good mix of like alt country, punk rock, some really golden like gems, like Beatles albums, Michael Jackson and Prince and all of like the, yeah, the heavy hitters. We, we, we had those and, nice. and, and then I had them and then similar, I just kept moving back and forth across the country and I was like man three record crates milk crates full of vinyl is really heavy in my car I probably have about four or five if I compress it maybe six yeah don't get rid of a single one I will take my truck and trailer and like slowly (laughs) move you across because it's you went and hunted for each one of those and it was a little gem that stuck out to you and I think you should keep them yeah. And a few of them are, are the ones I actually made. Like I've actually made records. I'm waiting for my latest record that I developed with a band to be delivered today. So I'm just like, how much can I really get rid of? And as someone who's moved across this, the country before, is it really a nightmare? Because it sounds like it kind of is. Um, it is. It Mostly it's that that feeling of loss that you're leaving someplace and your friends and I miss my friends and I miss my stores in Phoenix. And I, you know, and I, same thing when I left Montana and moved to Arizona. And then when I moved to Canada and then moved to Montana and then moved to Canada, (laughs) there was a lot. And it was mostly the loss of friends and um, like habits, uh, shopping habits or friends that I get to hang out with. That was the biggest loss. Like your yoga and boxing people are going like, it's, you're going to feel that one. Definitely. Even though they're from the same city I'm from, but I'm just, I think the COVID situation is not helping either because I'm just like, well, I can't really do anything right now. That's why I've extended it to two years. Cause I'm like, I want to enjoy this city COVID or post-COVID if I can, if that's even going to be a thing. I don't even know, but we'll see how it goes. I'm literally playing year by year at this point in my life, which is really <laughs> reckless for 40. <laughs> We're just getting started. We're just getting exactly, started. Exactly. Can you imagine me in 20 more years? Oh my goodness. Oh, 20 years. It's going to be a good 20 years because I feel like I'm in a much better mental spot than I was in 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I was 17. Wow. (laughs) 17 year old Suta. Yes. And I've always been like ultra responsible, the designated driver. And I always put off partying and, and now um, I guess I won't ever really get to party the way I I thought like when I was 17, 
what I really wanted to do was not the responsible thing. And I was going to um, run away with my friend S I'll call her. And, uh, <laughs> and we were going to be flight attendants and travel the world and just be go-go dancers that go to all of the different international raves. And all we wanted to do was dance. <laughs> And I'm like, I think I could be that girl in the, um, you know, in the cage and, and I could be, I just be the dancing girl. I still have to dance still requires no alcohol for me to get stupid on the floor. <laughs> you could still do it. I could still do it. I maybe, but you could be Blackfoot Barbie, like that would be crazy. <laughs> Yes. I wish I could put that decal on my truck, but we do live in a state where that would probably like have some creepy guy waiting just to see who Blackfoot Barbie is to get, get in her truck. Yeah. And we, I would need, I would definitely need to utilize more of my self-defense training and situation. You would need an awareness. AK on the top of the truck. If you put that decal on there, that's not a bad idea, <laughs> but I don't know how I feel about like a gun rack next to my child's seat. Yeah. Uh, not yet not yet Um, so unfortunate that yeah even on the way to Montana it was so apparent as soon as I got on that flight that it was just conservative city because a few rows of them just took off their masks and were just like we're going to be maskless the rest of the flight because we're pretty much in Montana already Mm. it was just so gross well thanks a lot because all of the ICUs are full in Montana right now. Really? No. No masks for how long and all of a sudden the ICUs are full? I know. Figure that. Weird. <laughs> that is so weird. Oh, but we had a freaking journey going to the Canadian border like Oh my goodness, and we were talking smack about the border just like a few months ago. <laughs> Why we had to give them the rundown of what happened? Because yeah. I was just in the passenger seat. Oh, there was an angel there. His name was D. And um, all the names of the innocent have been protected to <laughs> change to be for their protection. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, when I crossed in August for Ekagatsin and uh, what they call uh, Sundance, it's not like a Lakota Sundance, it's a Blackfoot gathering. They told me that what day was it? They were like August 28th, the rapid test restrictions should come off. And as long as you have your vaccination card and your passport, you should be fine to pass. And so that's what we were going on. And, and then just a couple of weeks before you left that they, they changed those restrictions and they said, Oh, if you have a uh, vaccination card, a rapid test, that's a negative result and your passport, then you can pass. And so I called you a couple of weeks before, and I was like, let's just get our rapid tests just in case. I don't think they're requiring them, but I think it'll make it easier to go through. And so then we got to the border and it turns out that they were requiring rapid tests uh, as a negative result. And I was super nervous about mine because I didn't think they were required. And it was like seven hours, only seven hours past the 72 hour window that they require. (laughs) I hope the guy doesn't get in trouble. Like no one's watching me at the border, but just so listeners know, I feel like the calling last name is flagged at the border because my grandpa art calling last every time he drove through and he always went to go get horse feed, uh, which I think is 
um, you need to pay duty on or something, but he snuck it across. And, and the questions at the border are, where are you from? Where are you going? And how long are you staying? And he would just flip it around from the time I was like 15 or 16 years old. He would, oh, my name's Art calling me. Where are you from? And, and how long are you planning on staying here in my land? <laughs> right. That reminds me of, it reminds me of smoke signals when Frank Fence Post is like, I am from where the land meets the sky. When the police are asking him, like, where are you from? And he's just, he just goes super stoic. Name? Frank Fence Post. Address? Where do I live? Yeah, where do you live? I live where the land meets the sky, where the eagle and the raven fly free. I live under the sun and the moon. That's my grandpa. And he, he always had this big, deep voice. And well, where am I from? Where are you from? And how long are you planning on staying here? Because they always, they ship in our border guards from like Newfoundland. They're always from Quebec or someplace very far East Coast and have never been to Blackfoot territory. And sometimes they don't even know that they're stationed right in between two sister nations where where there's kids like me, my mom's Blackfeet enrolled there, my dad's blood enrolled there. I'm an INAC Indian. I, 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 you know, I can come down to the States and work and educate and all of that is my treaty. Right. And anyhow, so I think my name is flagged at the border, <laughs> the calling last name in, um, because of those sassy questions and, and after that, like I got my car torn apart. I've had drug dogs like pretty regularly, like come around my vehicle. Like they're just looking for anything, right? Like anything they can find. And they've, they've torn my, I had, I used to have this really cute Honda prelude and they tore the carpet out of there. They you know, just messed it up. And, and luckily I had a copy of the J treaty and I was like, here you go, please look at this and, <laughs> and refer all your questions to tribal leaders. But um, I'm, I'm just doing me and what I think that I can do, which is visiting my mom and my dad who only really live like an hour apart, but have this border international border and check stations that I have to go through to visit them. And anyway, long story short, or long story longer, <laughs> uh, we got to the border and, and he says that, well, we had to come around because they had to, my arrive can app didn't yeah. have, didn't have my test in it because we mm. didn't have internet service to upload the pictures of the if people yeah, don't know, like there's an actual app to cross into Canada and you have to get it right. There's no way around it. Right. Right. And we were for family uh, reunification, both of us. And anyway, this, this guy's Oh, Greg jumps on the phone with me from the, I have no idea. He's probably sitting in an office in Calgary or Edmonton. And he's, I called him the vaccination guard is what he was. And he's like, I cannot legally let you into Canada with your PCR test is, I don't care if your PCR test is negative. It's outside the 72 hour window. So I'm going to have to have you uh, drive back into the United States and get another rapid test and then come back up to the border. And I'm like, but my friend has an airplane in like three hours and it's going to take three hours to drive down to Shelby, Montana, get another rapid test, wait an hour. And by the time I get back to the border, my test results should be in, but we're going to miss her plane. Well, she can reschedule her flight. 
And I'm like, no, no, (laughs) like, come on, Greg, isn't there anything you can do to make this easier for me? First of all, he didn't ask me, you know, what kind of Canadian I was like, I think it makes a difference. Regular citizen versus INEC native with a treaty, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what kind of business we were on. And so I'm still getting uh, little updates that say, uh, how's your quarantine going? <laughs> me too. I'm like, and they even called me and I was like, honey, I'm not even there anymore. I'm like, can wow. you make the email stop? <laughs> so <laughs> So I like, I don't know if we should mention this part, but like the border guard was really truthful and super honest. And he said, you, you both are Canadian citizens and I can't legally stop you from entering into Canada. And I'm like, what can I do, Greg? Can I, should I cancel uh, lunch with my family? Like, I, I won't see anybody. I promise. I just need to get her to the airport and I'll just drop her right off. And anyway, we got you to the airport. Yes, but I felt like I, I felt like an outlaw and I didn't see anybody. I didn't stop. I didn't, they didn't chase us at all. I mean, (laughs) we were crossing by land and technically we didn't need the negative test. That was for airline only. As far as I was concerned, because on the way back, I needed to take another test because the Canadian airlines were like, no way you need to be negative to even Mm -hmm. get on this plane. Mm-hmm. And I crossed three weeks earlier and they said the test wouldn't be required. And then I didn't see any changes or updates or anything, but Montana's getting worse. I think I saw um, an article from Alberta saying that the hospitals are about a month away from collapse. And so I am kind of rethinking my October visit even though I'll, I'll probably get a negative test and do all of the same things mm-hmm. over again. I just, I don't know if I want to go in anywhere <laughs> in Canada right. or anywhere. Like maybe I just, just wait, but I've, you know, I don't know what to do, but we made it across the border. It was uh, kind of sketchy, but we did it. Yeah. Nobody chased us. We got to Cardston, <laughs> Alberta in one piece and I was totally relaxed, but I could tell that there was something up when I was waiting in the little, in the little carport there, just kind of like, mm-hmm. what is taking them so long over there? Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like that Ikea commercial when they run out and they're like, start the car, start the car. <laughs> I was like, what's was going like, on? Are we running from the border? Yes. Yes, we were. <laughs> and I was like, uh, just, just look normal. Don't walk too fast. Right away. Right and like, away. I'm so not normal. That's why I was like, well, what do I do? Just close my eyes and like, not look at anything. Like I didn't mm. know what to do, but it was cool. And yeah, that was the first time that I've ever experienced a really cool guard at the border who was like, whoa, he's like, cause he understood our situation. Mm-hmm. He knew that I was due for a flight mm-hmm. and everything depended on the next chain of like actions that we took like it was really going to affect everything even how fast we even got held up for like 45 minutes that affected our time travel as well Mm -hmm. absolutely and then it coming back down I like apparently they closed the gates at six o'clock and I can't tell you how weird it is to have an international border between your parents and between your communities And I grew up in both communities. I have like immediate family members in both Mm -hmm. communities. And, and I pulled up at 608 back at the border because I did what I said I was going to do. I 
dropped you off and just turned around and came back to nothing else. And, and, um, I don't know if, is this self-incriminating? This, no. <laughs> what we're talking about, like, uh, we're, we're um, indigenous. We, <laughs> there's no way they can but put I, us away for on our being on our own I, land. I can't tell you how weird it is to see a padlocked gate across the road between your parents' house. And, <sighs> And luckily, like my border crossing knowledge is like, it's not the end of the world. I know where two 24 hour border crossings are. I just have to drive a couple of hours and, and I, I made it <laughs> uh, back to my campsite um, on the other side in Montana, which was think- gorgeous, by the way. Oh my goodness. Thank you for that again. Yes. Yes. Right around nine o'clock. I think I, my day was finally over and. Yeah, I was actually laying in my parents' bed and uh, texting you at that time. And I was like, I've had such a crazy day. And you were like, you you had a crazier day. Because as soon as I got on the planes, it was like smooth sailing, literally, like all the babies were laughing on the flight. Like it was just lovely. But to get there was kind of like a crunch. It was a weird adventure, definitely crossing borders. And what you said about the padlock, I had a, a kind of a similar experience, maybe not really, but I went to one of my beaches when I came here when I went back home to Winnipeg, there's Winnipeg beach, which is uh, not like less than an hour drive. And uh, I was trying to access just the beach. And there's been so much development lately since I've been gone for the past, like almost seven years that the, the closest I could get to it was this parking lot. And I just had this brutal colonial epiphany. I'm like, I can't even get to the beach because of private properties on my own land. And I'm stuck in this like concrete parking lot looking at the beach, but I can't get to it. And I just stood there for like the longest time having this like moment of like land, land ownership, colonial BS in my head. Well, I just wanted to go sit on the beach. We eventually found another spot that was more like a park, but it was just like, uh, the, what they've done to the land is just so heart wrenching sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I think I- about it too long, you know, mm-hmm. Right. I'm like, I was thinking about my truck's four wheel drive and the the gravel roads. And I'm like, would they really shoot me if I just kind of took a gravel road? And would my tribal leaders stand up for me and protect me if I was like, no, it's an emergency. I need to be home and I can make it home. Like I'm 45 minutes away from my house on the Blackfeet reservation and 45 minutes, well, less than that, half an hour away from my house on the blood reserve. Like, should I really drive two hours in another direction just to cross? Or can I just take this gravel road? <laughs> um, but it's, it's a sense of mourning. Like I felt mm-hmm. like a mournful feeling of, you know, one of my grandpas on my paternal side is uh, Sako. His daughter, Kate, is my grandpa's mom, and he was known as one of the Blood Reserve's last Indian outlaws, which was shared with me at Godson that by a, a really cool researcher and ally anthropologist. They, they exist out there. They're, there's ally anthropologists wow. that want to uphold our narrative, but work within this system and recognize that, you know, there's theories that people's work relies on and you are undermining people's authority when you're like, my people didn't come across the Bering Strait. Like we were here. We're, we're not, you know, we have a different language group. We have a different genetic code. Like we we're just different. Like we're not the same people. And, and 
for another thing going going on a tangent here is that the Americas didn't need to be populated through one way and one way only. Like the Bering Strait theory has been debunked so many times as the primary one and only route for populating the Americas. Like there's people here and civilizations here, buildings and canals here, older than the Bering Strait theory. And and I don't know. There's, it's a lot of reading, <laughs> but I can save you from that if you just, yeah, believe me. <laughs> we belong to the land, y'all. We yes. belong to the land. Yes, yes. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a really mournful feeling to have that padlock right That's there. That's what I was feeling. I was feeling mournful because I couldn't access the beach. I had come, you know what, 3,000 miles to be with my family and connect with my land. And there I was stuck in a parking lot looking mm -hmm. at it from afar and being like, what the F? Because mm -hmm. everyone's got a fence around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you are, you're the beach Indian. You need, yeah. you, had, you had canoes, you needed to go down to the water for your food and your centering and your spirituality. Like I can see how that would be. Oh, so sad. So sad. There needs to be. So if we have any listeners around lakes in, in Manitoba area or anywhere in the U S we do have a cultural land trust at Indigenous Vision that will give you a tax deduction if you allow access on your property. So you don't have to donate your land in full, although that's an option if you don't have kids who want it or if you have kids who don't want to work the farm and you still want the land to be valued. We love the land and we try really hard to connect it with its original people that belong there, that have spiritual ties to it, origin ties to it. So it's not just like a, like a Blackfeet land trust trying to work its way over on the whole Canada, United States. It's a indigenous land trust that's working to get access back to the, these important areas and implement our harvesting activities and any other activities, cultural activities that we choose back out on the land that creates these, these areas. So 80% of the world's biodiversity is protected by indigenous people, our cultural ways, our spiritual ways. And I would like to uh, increase that number here in the U.S. on the North American continent, in Canada and the U.S., that Indigenous people have access to their ancestral territories to engage in cultural and harvesting activities once again. And so Melissa was out there trying to engage in a cultural activity. We don't need to know what it is. It's none of our business. But she's trying to connect with that land in a way that an, an Anishinaabe woman should have the right to do that. And all it takes is signing up with the cultural land trust, calling me, emailing me, and then we work out a season or a time and we just keep that open. And members of that nation may contact me and say, Hey, I'm looking for a land to hunt. I'm looking for a land to berry pick. I need to do a prayer at the water. And I don't want tourists gawking at me. Is there an opening or do you have any land around this area and hypothetically that would work with us saying yes there's my goal for that is to have cultural harvesting what what would i call them like sanctuaries within 250 miles of any indigenous person anywhere on this continent like if you call me i can 
tell you a place within a couple of hours that you can go, we'll schedule it. The landowner knows you're there or it's donated right to us. There's a way that we can hand stewardship management responsibilities over to the nation that it belongs to. Uh, some of the landowners that have donated us, we've, we've got 77 acres so far. Um, one of the landowners is very explicit that she wants Indigenous people to use it, but she doesn't want a casino. And so there's things like that that we have to navigate, but I so far Absolutely. I'm doing okay. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. I really think that that could take off and be beneficial for like the entire continent and it will lessen the mournfulness and just the connection that or our relations in general, because that'd be so cool if I had a safe place to just go chill by the beach and do what I needed to do and connect. And the land is officially calling me back. So that's why I I had this huge epiphany in the Mm. past like week. I haven't even been back for a week, actually. It'll be a week tomorrow that I've been back. And already I'm already feeling it, which is crazy. But again, there's all these like boundaries and borders in my way of just even just going back to where I'm from is like, I got to jump through so many hoops just to get back. I came pretty far though on my own. So it's kind of my own fault, but <laughs> I'm almost ready to return. But I could, I could definitely do some mapping out there too. Like there's so many great places. There's just Mm -hmm. so much to do and it's beautiful land in the summer, especially. Mm -hmm. And that's another aspect of the, um, so all of our programs like really are intersectional here and they meld together. And so we have a environmental and social justice mapping program. We have a citizen science program that's related to that. And then this cultural land trust. And so you don't have to be an indigenous person to be a guardian of the land. You can help us monitor environmental and social injustices that are happening around the area. You can take a look at our website now, and we have like mining and water maps. We have um, some social injustice maps up there. And uh, as a non-Indigenous person, you can also submit a report as well. And especially what I'm finding is very cool here in Montana is that I'm meeting a lot of allies from border communities that I thought were just racist AF, like beyond, like beyond a relationship because they, you know, told go back to the res, you dirty Indian, as we played ball, like these girls are my age now and parents and maybe teaching their kids the same exact thing that their parents yelled at us from the stands and racist, racist stuff. And, and so I was really pessimistic at first, but in the last year and over the summer that I've been doing the mapping, there's so many nice people out there who are like, yeah, I'm going to help you. This is, this is what the story is. And actually this ranch has been in my family since it was a bought in the allotment process from the nation. And those stories of land settlement on my, my justice map are just as important as the native stories. And what we're doing is we're creating a record like a social record of, of the people who are on the land, the stories and the lives that are happening on the land. And I think there's much more commonalities in our stories than we, when we want to give credit to, because we always see like indigenous people, people from the res and people from the border town as like others, but our families have been facing the same things for the last 200 years. And 
and a lot of the same feelings about it. And so I always like to say that settlers have tr- historical trauma too. Like, I think their trauma sounds like, uh, I think I mentioned it in a few episodes back is that my non-native massage partner was scared of drums, the sound of drums, and she would get shivers. And I'm like, that's a, maybe a historical trauma thing. Cause you're scared of like drums. And then, and then I made myself giggle like, okay, well, they're probably scared of the sound of arrows or war whooping. And so I'm like, or if you did a war cry, like yes. <laughs> out of the blue, could you yes. imagine? Oh, they would, they, they, yeah, I've seen people react to those and they do cower down. Like, and so there's, there's historical trauma on the indigenous side and there's historical trauma that the descendants of those first settlers carry with them too. And Mm -hmm. and all of those assumptions and biases that we need to work through to really have some, some healthy, genuine relationships happening. Right. Like I really do think that there is a collaboration hope out there for the land, you know, land back keeps popping in my head as you're talking land back, land back. Like I I really think that there's something there eventually. And I think Mm -hmm. the right people will be on board with it may not be everybody, but there's definitely going to be people who Mm. might not even be aware at this moment, but maybe if they were enlightened and thought of it, you know, without assumptions and in like a safe way with us, they would be like, sure, why not? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's really like the, some of the ranchers that I'm talking to, I'm, I'm asking them to get access to their land just as a mapper and a researcher to inventory what's left of my ancestors on their land. And I'm telling them, you know, if you don't want the public trotting through here, then I can put it on a map that only leaders and other people like me would have access to. I think it's going to be a login access some cybersecurity happening there and it won't be on the public access map. And so you won't have the public stopping by saying, I want to see your sundial and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then the via like the, the violations of the place, like looting and stealing and destroying. Mm -hmm. It's just, they're worried about it. And, and we are too. And so a lot of the people have been really cool. I want to go back to land back and how that's a really, it's a really great thing. And it's a really great concept and where it originated from is from a meme maker who is Blackfoot. He's, he's upset. I think why well, I don't want to talk for how he exactly how he feels, but I'm upset for him because he created a meme and coined the term and gets absolutely no credit for it. Like people just have co-opted the term and now are capitalizing like how many land back earrings have you seen or how many land back t-shirts yes and are those t-shirts benefiting organizations like us where we're raising money to steward land in an indigenous with indigenous management techniques and putting the original people back on it as our conservation method one of our conservation methods or are they just selling you a t-shirt to make money for themselves Maybe some people are just trying to get whatever they can, you know, they're just trying to squeeze out. But if you, but if you're getting it from your own community, it's kind of not the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. right? Like if a bunch of indigenous people buy a land back shirt from an indigenous company, that's not investing in indigenous, you know, actual land back practices. It's just going around and around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Uh. 
<laughs> well, I saw another thing like that. Um, like sept- end of September is another orange shirt day. I think it's September 30th. Mm-hmm. And um, they're sending memes around social media that says, make sure you get your orange shirt from an indigenous person or indigenous organization, because we have all kinds of like pop-up shops that are like mass producing every child matters. And, and people just profit off of these social causes and the roots of, of what that is like our children benefiting from that, from the thousand dollars made off of your t-shirt sales right. is, is more in, is more land in indigenous hands or accessible to indigenous people by the sale of your land back t-shirt. And so, yeah, I think it does matter. It, it all matters. And so I have always been really conscious of not using the land back term because I feel, I feel for that meme maker. <laughs> yeah, that would, um, that would be a lot. There was a lady, uh, an indigenous woman in Winnipeg when I was working on the radio station who did the got land question mark phrase. And she made a ton of t-shirts and she did invest it back into MMIW, which cool. was really cool. But that's an example of how she coined this term. And it was like this, this hit among, you know, indigenous people in Canada and sold mm-hmm. a bunch of t-shirts and then did it for, I think she used it to buy headstones for graves of MMIWs who didn't have any. That's great. So it's beautiful, right? Just from a shirt that said the playoff of got milk was just Mm -hmm. got land. Thank an Indian Mm -hmm. really out there. It is, it is, it is, but you know, all of the land in Canada and U S was indigenous land. At one point, there's not one place, not one parcel, not one acre that is excluded from once being indigenous land i think that's what settlers have a hard time wrapping their head around is that they think that it's just portions of canada and the u.s that are that are ours yeah like there were some sacred areas (laughs) and some use but we were nomadic (laughs) and running around without houses excuse me i the blackfoot people are not nomadic we have seasonal homes and we move our camps to those seasonal home areas Mm -hmm. because we live sustainably and we live smart (laughs) Right. I can't wait to explore my territory. There's this white shell provincial park that has a pretty sacred spot. And unfortunately it's been open to the public. I avoided it because of my toxic ways, but I'm ready to visit it now. And it's got a bunch of dials and stuff like that. And I want to go investigate to see how much has been tampered with and is legit. And then how much is actually legit. Oh, please listeners. Let me plead with you. Please be an advocate of, of any teepee circles, geoglyphs, effigies, carns. If you're a person who sits by the river and stacks rocks, don't. If you're spending time meditating on top of the mountain and you're stacking rocks, please don't. You're ruining the knowledge and the chance that my people and other indigenous people have to actually utilize the knowledge and the place as it is we can't tell your hippie rock stacking from ancient ancestral rock stacking like we can't we can sometimes i I mean sure there's experts who can but me and my novice eye and and my mapping so far can't tell the difference between a hippie rock stack and a and a um, ancestral rock stack and i guess i kind of could but it's it's really hard to discern you know Mm -hmm. and the information that's held under that like 
Tell me another population in the world right now that has been in its one spot for 10,000 plus years and has structures in place to, to analyze and research into what your ancestors were eating, what the precipitation and drought was like, where they were camped in what season? Was it a winter camp? Was it a summer camp? And uh, what was the diet like? We have that information sitting under our teepee circles. And if you touch those rocks, as soon as that soil hits the light, you ruin that information. And this is some major, major climate adaptation information where we know what we were eating and we know where we were camped and what the weather was like. And that's amazing to have that much data potential in, in one spot about one people and have the people still alive to actually decipher it. My, so that's the fun thing about mapping is that all of these signs that say a mysterious people or these mysterious rock formations, no, they're not mysterious. That's just what they're telling you. Our people and our elders are not forgetful and we still remember and we know exactly what it's for and it, its exact use. And let's stop saying descendants or made from an unknown people or it's mysterious. That's, that's one of the narratives that we're trying to change. Toxic. Well, it's been lovely catching up with you, Suta Calling last, even though I just saw you last week. <laughs> I know. I love our visits. I love our visits. Um, but we should keep it short today. Uh, we covered a lot. Border topics, uh, land back, and environmental management. Even though uh, yeah, we carried a, covered a little bit of everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we'll be back soon, sooner than later, now that we're stationed again. Yeah, stationed again. Yes. again again station again stationed again there